Welcome to the Future of Supply Chain, where each episode we'll sit down with entrepreneurs, investors, and industry veterans to discuss innovation, technology, and the most exciting opportunities in trucking and logistics as we build the future of supply chain together. Be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Now, let's get into the show. Here's our host, Santosh Sankar. Hey, ladies and gents, welcome back to the Future Supply Chain Podcast. I'm your host, Santosh Sankar. And joining me today, all the way from Texas, is Rob Garrison, founder and CEO of Mercado Labs. Welcome, Rob. Thanks very much, Santosh. Thanks for having me. Yeah, got to have you on here and uh, kind of, I'm going to jump right in. And for our audience, uh, we have this great tenured international logistics executive here, but equally, you're a founder on your journey and would love to share kind of the quick 90 second skinny with everybody as to what you're building over there at Mercado. Yeah, a uh, th- great uh, jumping off point. Um, both both comments. So first of all, I am a lifelong practitioner. I think maybe we'll get into backgrounds in a little bit, but all of those experiences are what really led me to Mercado. What we do is we're an import management system. And most people look at the international supply chain, primarily they see it from a logistics lens, but there's a whole you know bunch of activities happening before it ever gets on a boat or a plane. And what I learned from all of my experiences is that if I could capture those activities upstream, I could make all the downstream activities better. So in a nutshell, in a 90 second overview, Mercado is an import management system and we do three things and they're pretty simple. We connect importers to their suppliers, partners and products. So that's step one. We connect then their products to their demand so they know it's coming at them. And then the last piece is we connect their team because it's a big, long journey. It takes about four months to get an import in. And you got sourcing people, purchasing people, logistics people, and they're all on different pages. So we bring them together. And if we do that right, then we help the importer improve their time to market. And we also help them reduce their expenses and we help them increase their sales. So that's that's the 90-second nutshell of Mercado as an import management system. What's the Rob Garrison story before we we jump in further into the business and and the world of international logistics? Like, how did you get into this wild and wonderful world? (laughs) So, you know, just like every other kid in America, I grew up as a little boy just praying that I could be in the international logistics business. (laughs) I was was one of the chosen few, right? Just like I got recruited to a a triple A ball club. No, I, I mean, I, honestly, Santosha, everybody that I know that's been in the business for a while has a similar story in that we all sort of fell into it backwards. And it's a pretty common theme. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting when I meet all the people that are the leaders in this industry and ask them for the background, it's a pretty common theme that they didn't grow up wanting to be an international logistics guy, obviously, and neither did I. In my case, it was purely by accident. I was a construction worker. My family had a construction business. And I was married young, had a couple of kids. And so I, I really was just looking for a steady state employment because I was in Chicago at the time and, and construction work there is not very steady, lucrative, but not steady. And so I had a friend who worked for an ocean carrier uh, called American President Lines, and they had an opening and I applied and got it. And so that was my entree into international logistics. Uh, fast forward, just a quick summary of where that took me, because it's been a really fascinating ride. I went from APL. Uh, I worked there for eight years and, and mostly on their uh, logistics side. That's where I first learned about order management. 
And then I was curious what it was like on the other side. So I, I left APL and went to the importer side and I worked for Michael stores here in Dallas, Texas, where I'm based. And from there, I got recruited to go to Kmart up in Troy, Michigan. And that those were both fascinating. I got to learn a lot about what it was like to be an importer. And uh, unfortunately, Kmart went bankrupt in about 2001. I had an opportunity to stay, but I elected not to. And I, I made a decision to get back with my tribe. And so I joined uh, UPS when they were just forming their supply chain division. Mm. From there, I left and, and got recruited by FedEx to join their nascent division, which was called Trade Networks. And just amazing people and experiences. And I love the supply chain, Santosh. It's taken me all over the world. I've been to 49 countries. I've got to see all these great companies like Apple and Target and Caterpillar Tractor and how they operate supply chains. And I've realized that the supply chain is really the connected tissue for the entire economic ecosystem. So I can read the newspaper and figure out exactly what's going to happen in supply chain. So it's just been it's been a phenomenal career. So even though I backed into it, uh, it's it's really been a passion of mine ever since. And it's made me uh, animated and excited and curious, which is what led up to Mercado. This is sort of uh, at the at the apex of my career. I want to take all of that experience and then apply what's really great right now. Um, a democratization democratization of tech uh, has come about in the last five years. It's much more affordable and easy to use. And then also there's this great ecosystem, uh, Santosh, of people like you that are helping entrepreneurs like me uh, get off the ground. So, so that's the trajectory of my career. And that's uh, how I got into it was by accident. But once I got into it, I loved it and I wouldn't want to do anything else. <laughs> I feel like uh, supply chain does that to folks that uh, you, you end up kind of stumbling into it. And then once you're in, you're, you're in, you, you fall in love. Um, but kind of with that, you, you, I have somebody here who has over two decades of experience in international logistics, and you've clearly been through your kind of cycles, right? The, the ups and downs uh, and the, the different patterns that we tend to see in this part of the world. And I'd be curious, like, well, what's your take on the current state of uh, imports? Because it, it's kind of uh, it's, it's kind of a shit show, <laughs> for lack of a better word. <laughs> You took, you took the words right out of my mouth. I didn't know if we were allowed to swear on your podcast, but that's exactly how I described it. And, you know, when you asked me that question, I'm kind of thinking, like, where do I start? As you mentioned, I've been doing this for several decades, actually. And we saw our ups and downs, but they were pretty cyclical. Like about every five years, you could kind of expect an ebb and a flow. This is what's so strange for me. I've never seen anything like this. The last four years straight have been a shit show, right? So it started when, uh, you know, former President Trump picked a fight with the president of China and that led to tariffs and, you know, shifts in sourcing. That created all kinds of turmoil in importing. And then we went straight from that into the pandemic and, you know, factories closing down, people not knowing where they're going, just just an amazingly difficult time to, to get through. Most people are starting to get through that. And then we got out of that and the ocean carriers went into complete and total chaos. And so for the last four years, I can tell you continuously for the last four years, the import market has been in a complete state of flux. And I, you know, it's it, like anything ever, nothing like I've ever seen. So I really can't describe it or define it even in historical terms. It's unprecedented. And, you know, is there any line of sight or are you able to kind of pattern match to some of the other things you've seen as to when things might normalize or, or maybe fall back into the normal routine of a cycle? 
Well, so it depends on which aspect of the business. So if we're talking about purchasing from an international supply chain perspective, that business, that side of business is going to change forever. I mean, I, I can't imagine when buyers are going to start to get into, you know, small metal tubes and fly 16 hours to go see people in Asia. That's <laughs> going to be a long time. And the, the good news, though, is I mentioned the democratization of technology. The good news is a lot of solutions have come up for those folks and they may not have to do as many uh, trips overseas. And so I, I think technology will help on the purchasing side. But the big piece in the news right now, uh, Santosh, is the logistics piece. Yep. Uh, the ocean carriers ran out of containers and then that led to sort of panic buying, almost like, uh, you know, almost like the toilet paper on shelves. Frankly, people were over ordering containers and desperate to get on a vessel. So I led to panic buying. That led to massive price increases. I, I talked to uh, one of the biggest importers in the United States about three weeks ago who had to pay $19,000 to get an ocean container from Vietnam to, um, to Chicago. So that's how crazy that got. So the pricing's yeah. all out of whack. And then even if you get through all that, carriers have just sort of ch had to change their philosophy. So a, a loyal customer is no longer a loyal customer. It's all about supply and demand. So even if you've been a longstanding customer, you still have to fight. Once you got a container, you have to fight to get space in the vessel and not get rolled. And then if you're lucky enough to get it on a vessel, you're not done with the pain yet because you're going to eventually show up at the West Coast where vessels are backlogged for seven days. So uh, to, to that point, I, I will take a slightly contrarian view on this one, Santosh, on the specific logistics uh, issue. Every one of my friends who's an expert in ocean tells me that this thing is going to last throughout 21 for sure. Wow. And they're really convinced of that. I'm taking a contrarian view. I actually think and I'll get shot for saying this, but I think things are going to start to normalize by the end of April. Hmm. Why is that? Well, just from experience, there's a couple things that I see that are going to alleviate some of this pain. And people are people do and will argue with me about this, Santosh. But I, the, the one thing that's going to help a little bit is it's Chinese New Year. And people argue, yeah, but they're not, not as many people are going to travel. That's true. China's putting some restrictions, but they're tiny in comparison. There's still going to be 1.3 billion people taking two weeks off of work, and it's going to significantly slow production and in most cases halt it altogether. Mm -hmm. And so for two weeks, we're going to get a relief from that container demand. That's going to help, and it's happening right now. The other thing that makes me uh, sort of, I guess, bullish on a solution that soon is that when you look at typical purchasing cycles, normally importers purchase really heavily for the fall, gearing up for the holiday season, because that's the one time a year where people will spend an extra two or three grand of discretionary income at one time. So they really got to load up for those holiday seasons. Historically, the opposite happens in the first quarter in that there's not much demand because what you'd be shipping in those times is going to be for early spring and there's not a big event to propel that. There's no back to school or holidays that drive that. And so even though we're still seeing a bullish market in January, a lot of that is a hangover from November and December. Yeah. So I believe there's not much new demand coming other than some panic buying, but apparel's down 28% and that's a big commodity that normally moves. Footwear's down 38% and that's a big commodity that normally moves. So I believe demand is going to ease off. And the biggest thing, I guess, depending on how your perspective is, both the Chinese government and the U.S. government are really going after the carriers uh, to, to get things back to normal because it's affecting 
you know, the Chinese economy, the exporters are losing money and losing business. And on the U.S. side, the agricultural exporters can't get containers. And so I, I think a combination of normal lack of demand, a little bit of pause in the action with Chinese New Year and uh, some government intervention are going to coalesce together to really ease this crisis. And, I, and again, I think it'll happen by the end of April. But I also want to be on record as saying I've talked to at least 10 experts who disagree with me. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> But I'll, I'll still bid anybody a six pack of beer that it's going to be significantly <laughs> better by the end of April. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I'm uh, I, I'm really glad that uh, you're you're willing to share that contrarian opinion and and kind of like fundamentally, I I agree with uh, those three drivers that that you point out. So we might just need to wait and see, and and uh, at that point we could settle out in in six packs uh, between you and, we'll and, s- and all your. We'll settle out six packs, or you can have me on a May, and, and we'll do it live where you can throw tomatoes at me or something <laughs> if I'm wrong. <laughs> So, you know, kind of uh, as we wrap up on, on this point, are, are there any implications for planning for the future? Uh, you know, I, I'm talking about across the board, whether you're talking about buying, whether you're talking about the, the practical logistics that professionals need to walk away with. Right. And, you know, would uh, a young Rob Garrison early on in his career look at this type of event uh, and take away a particular learning uh, for the rest of his time in the well, industry? Actually, if I was young, this might have caused me to walk away from this crazy business. So I'm glad it didn't happen then. But um, here's what I would say to anybody listening is that what's going to get everybody out of this mess is the one thing that we've all been saying for years, which is data. You know, one one of the things that when you're dealing with all of these challenges, whether it be a pandemic, so you've got uncertain supply and uncertain demand, or it's tariffs, and so now you've got uncertain expenses that you didn't have before, certain sourcing shifts, which cause all kinds of disruptions, and now you've got this uh, sort of ocean logistics crisis. The, the one salvation, the people that I see doing best in these times of turmoil are the people that have the best data because they've got a handle on the pulse of the supply side. And as you get more and more granular and more and more detailed on what's happening during production and what's happening with your orders and being able to provide good forecasts, as I mentioned at the top, you can use all that data to change a lot of outcomes downstream. So I'll just give you one example that ties into that logistics. One one of the best practices I heard from a top 10 importer was he's leveraging his purchase order data because you issue a purchase order three months before you ship it. So he knows his expected ship date. So he's giving carriers rough forecasts 90 days out, better forecast 60 days in when when the suppliers start booking, really good forecast 30 days out. And then he's booking 21 days in advance, but he's able to do all that because he's got phenomenal control over his data. And the one the one sort of common theme in this whole international supply chain space, Santosh, is just a, a really, really surprising, almost alarming, almost shocking lack of digitization. Uh, the, the whole front end of the process and most of the middle mile is still being run um, you know, with, with uh, Microsoft Office. So that's got to change. People have to connect to all these nodes and they've got to leverage the data to make better, faster decisions and be able to see further upstream with additional transparency, et cetera, all the right stuff, but you don't have any choice now. This, these crises aren't gonna stop and, and the way you're gonna get ahead of it is to have really great connectivity and data. Mm, that's a really interesting insight. So I, I'm gonna kind of uh, transition that and you know, uh, I, I'd be remiss not to do a deep dive on Mercado 
and and what you're building there uh, around the import side, and and kind of to to open, you know, I'd, I'd be curious for our listeners, like when you say import management system, what does that practically mean? What are the key functions and uh, benefits of having this system in place? Yeah, th- great question, and. Um... I think I mentioned it a second ago, but when you talk about the international supply chain, most people's minds immediately move to logistics side. So they they immediately think of ocean shipping and there's a a huge industry of freight forwarders and ocean and so forth. So that's natural. That's what you see. But what you don't see and you wouldn't see is what happens before it gets on the boat. And so there's two things that make imports unique. One is that all the goods you order from Asia are custom manufactured. You're not placing an order with somebody and they're pulling it off a shelf and putting it on an ocean carrier. They're using your purchase order to go out and buy the raw materials to make your product. So on average, there's 90 days of activity that are occurring before it gets on a boat. So if you look at that whole four-month journey, 75% of it is purchasing and 25% of it is transportation. So when I look at it, I say, well, transportation is super important, but it's only 25% of that four-month journey. And so when we built our import management system, we said, it would really be better if we could get further upstream because the sooner you can hit that first domino, the less dominoes can fall before it arrives at your DC. Mm-hmm. And so we started with planning and that's typically either a, a buyer or a sourcing person planning what they're going to purchase. So we have a planning module and then we built the module for the purchasing people that we call buy because we're really clever people, but we call that buy. And so we <laughs> carry them through that journey of, that custom manufacturing with things like production control and change control and inbuilt communication and all the things that you need to monitor your production. And then we continue it on through logistics by making an electronic handshake from purchasing when the manufacturing is done to logistics. So what that does is it connects the sourcing, the, the planning part of it, to the purchasing side of it, to the logistics side. So now all three of those entities or departments are talking the same language, have the exact same information, can plan in advance, can can do all the things that you would want to do as a team. And I kind of liken it to a relay race. I said, you know, if, if you were for the first time going out to run with three other runners besides yourselves, and you had never met and you had never practiced and talked about, you know, how many steps do I take before I hand you this baton, all the things that you normally do, you can't do them in the international supply chain because every department siloed and talks a separate language and isn't aware of what's happening before or after them. So our system was meant to unify those three functions onto one platform. And then the second thing we've done is given all those people uh, automation, workflow and process so they can do their work more efficiently. And, you know, you mentioned uh, kind of a lot of this work was done in spreadsheets and kind of a, a general office productivity software. Is that kind of the... the um competition you're going against here in in better managing these workflows or are there other types of methodologies and and approaches people have used no that is our biggest competitor by far is microsoft office and you know i haven't done this for a while i can i can explain why that was the case you know for a long time there weren't really any options and so some of your listeners might be familiar with a company called gt nexus now called infor nexus yep so they came along in 1998 and they attempted to t- tackle this issue and did a phenomenal job, actually. But at that time, uh, technology hadn't yet been, wasn't accessible. It wasn't democratized at that point. And so 
the people that could afford that system were only the 1% of the importers, you know, Target or Caterpillar, those, those type of big, big importers. And so when we looked at this same challenge, we said they were on the right track, but we're able to do this starting in 2018 versus 1998. We can leverage all the stuff that you and I take for granted. So we can build in native language translation and we can build in tags and we can build in all these sort of consumer friendly features to make everything really easy to use, but also super affordable. So that's kind of what's changed is you didn't have any alternative, any really good alternatives to Microsoft Office until the last couple of years when all this, all these new technologies are coming in and bringing you great new tools for affordable prices that solve these challenges. So it's pretty exciting. Um, and, and so I'm not critical of anybody who was doing it that way in the past. I don't think they had a lot of choices. But now that there are choices, you know, we expect there to be a huge movement, just like we saw with the final mile starting 10 years ago, the, the gold rush that went into that. And, and now we can get stuff at our doorstep at eight o'clock at night. I believe that the first mile where the product is made is going to be that next push to get all of that um, just as efficient as the final mile. Sure. And, you know, kind of going back to, to the three modules you mentioned, plan, buy and move. Uh, at the surface, it would look like, you know, these are very distinct workflows managed by different groups. But as I kind of spend more time thinking about this and have gone through your website, like the beauty here is that you've like integrated this workflow and brought together stakeholders and, and vendors. What kind of benefits have you seen from your customers from, from doing that? Because I think it's, it's like a pretty clever way of going about this. Well, and the, the analogy I'd use there, Santash, is... You know, so you mentioned you've mentioned a couple of times <laughs> how old I am, right? So I I spent and hopefully some listeners spent a lot of time using maps, whether it was Rand McNally or you know AAA or or I lived in LA for a while, so Thomas Register, whatever it was. That's how we how we got around. We we looked at a physical map and usually we used a highlighter and figured out how we we're going to get to where we're going. And then along comes Garmin and Magellan, and all of a sudden you've got a box inside your car, and so pretty soon you can download maps and you have you know a sort of online navigation and that was a big leap forward but if you think about that it was linear so it was it was basically that my car driving me to my direction or guiding me to my direction so now along comes Waze and what's the difference Waze figured out how to connect all of the nodes around my car so mm. I can look at Waze and I can see the 15 other cars that have Waze and I know that Waze is taking all their data and my data and giving us all this really rich data because they're connecting the entire network. They're also connecting me to the gas station. They're also going to tell me if there's an accident so I can, and they'll reroute me automatically. So now I'm, I'm doing a sort of a network with many different nodes and I've got all those pieces of data that I can take advantage of instantly to make decisions. I can see the speed limit on there. I can tell where the nearest gas station is. If I'm hungry, I can find out where the nearest restaurant is all with the click of a button. It's instant. And ultimately, when you talk about this international supply chain, you know, there's up to 30 different people on a single purchase order. And yep. there's eight different business entities in six different departments. Imagine, Santosh, if I could do the connectivity of all of those nodes and find out that, oh, the inspection of this product didn't pass. And so therefore, there's going to be a week delay. What if my inspection company was connected and they were a node? I could be that much more efficient. And what if my local drainman in China was connected? And now I know that, that there's trucks available to pick up the stuff from my suppliers and take it a step further. What if my suppliers, suppliers were connected? 
so I can find out that maybe there's a shortage of buttons and my shirts aren't going to be on time. So, so I look at the technology that, that we're deploying and the, the way we construct it as a platform as having the ability to connect all those nodes. And then I think more importantly, uh, I look at companies like uh, NetSuite or Salesforce, where, where a platform either can't or doesn't want to be that point of connectivity. There's all these great point solutions uh, coming up in the market that we'd love to partner with and offer our customers more choices. So, mm. so that's, that's why we looked at it as one continuous string with a bunch of different nodes on it. And we want to plug into as many nodes as possible to give our customers much greater insights into their supply chains. Makes sense. Makes total sense. So, you know, I'd, I'd be curious, um, what's kind of been the biggest challenge in kind of defining this new category? Cause I noticed that, uh, you call it uh, kind of the first mile of logistics because uh, like in this supply chain market, there's all kinds of buzzwords and terms floating around without context. But I'd be curious, like, how are you chiseling out this category for yourself? Yeah, the, the I mean, what's what's really sort of um, worked for us, I think, in terms of an explanation, the easiest one that we can give people is almost everybody now Santosh, understands this term final mile. Even if you're not in supply chain, people know what final mile is. It's been in the news and it's been promoted like crazy. And so using that as our jumping off point, we say you understand your final mile and, and look at, just think even five years ago, it would take you two weeks to get something. If you even bought it online, you'd probably get to a store. Now you're ordering it in the morning and at night. So, so all of that investment and optimization in the final mile produced those results where you can deliver to your customer almost instantly. Contrast that with where your products are made. So that product that showed up at your door at eight o'clock at night was made in China mm-hmm. and it took four months to get here. So the next logical thing for you to do is to optimize that first mile and connect it to the final mile so you can make the whole process even more efficient. And so I, when I put it to people in those terms, then then the the dots connect to say, yeah, that's right. I, I started with final mile, which made sense because that's where my customers are. And I want to give them better service and, and beat my competition and all those all those virtuous things. That makes sense to me. Now I say to customers, now that you've got that sort of slipped out one way or another, the next thing you need to focus on is the product that showed up at their doorstop at eight o'clock at night because the customer was first, rightfully so. But the customer is buying from you what? They're buying products and your products are made in Asia. You need to optimize that. And so that that seems to work in a, in a very simplistic way to say, just connect your products with your demand. That's what what we're all about. That's what the final mile is all about. Yeah. Or the first mile, sorry. Yeah. No, it, it, it actually, that that's such an elegant uh, yet simple way to, to pull it together, right? Um, if, if you want something on time to your customer, yeah, you know, there's some stuff you could do in the final mile, but but really it's like, why don't you go up through the supply chain at the start of this four month journey and just build a better process, enrich it with data, continuously work to improve it, bring true transparency amongst those stakeholders so you can uh, ultimately, uh, you know, end up, uh, you know, delivering socks to Santosh's doorstep or whatever it might be. Well, and Santosh, think about those, how much, how much more efficient those final mile operations would be if they had this kind of data, right? Because they're pretty inefficient right now. Stuff is showing up and then eventually Santosh is ordering socks. But if if I have all that supply, because, you know, what I call what we do is a digital supply network. 
if I've got all my supply connected to all my demand constantly, right, just completely connected, my demand side is going to be immensely more efficient than it is right now, because it's not just the delivery. It's what if that container load of products, uh, those socks that Santosh wanted to buy, what if the container load of socks showed up at my distribution center and all of my sales were for red and everything that arrived in that container was blue? What do I tell Santosh? Sorry, we don't have red socks. And so you just think about all the quality issues, all the compliance issues, all the data issues, all the timeliness issues that would be solved if I was connected to the supply network and could feed all that great data and that rich data to my demand network and make it more efficient. Yep. Yep. Spot on, spot on. And, and kind of before we uh, depart from this uh, discussion around the, the product, like, you know, a, a lot of what you've done in this uh, first mile piece around IMS, you know, this is multi-stakeholder, right? Yeah, and you'd mentioned, you know, one PO might have, 30 or more parties uh, subject to it. How do you get everybody on the same page willing to go off of this same piece of technology? Or are you integrating into where they operate out of and providing that IMS backbone, if that question makes sense? Yeah, no, it makes total sense. And one of our one of our big concerns since we were building this is we knew that there was a lot of parties and that if we didn't make it easy for them to join they wouldn't, you know, they would object to their importer and say, listen, I don't want to play. I've got, you know, my own system or I'm using a forwarder system or whatever. And so, like I said earlier, I didn't mention it in this specific sense, but because technology is the way it is, I can connect most of the nodes in the network, including the suppliers for sure, over the internet. They don't have to download any software. I don't have to integrate with any system on their end. So they're going to receive their purchase order digitally. And they, once they register, they're going to sign in. And then immediately, they're going to be on the same system as the importer because both the importer and the supplier are looking at the exact same purchase order, which has been digitized. And all their work from that point is going to be collaborative. And so our experience has been now we can get a supplier up and running and trained in about a half an hour. So that's how much things have changed because we've made the user interface so simple. We've added in the features like I talked about, like native language translation and tags. We've got help videos on every screen. And so if you don't know how to edit a purchase order, you click a button and you can play a 90 second video in Mandarin of how to edit a purchase order. So the technology has progressed to the point that is democratic, meaning it's accessible and available and affordable to everybody. And that's the big leap. It's not that Rob Garrison had any, you know, any genius, uh, maybe the opposite of that. We just came along at a fortunate, fortunate time where the technology is caught up to the problem. Mm, I love that. I love that. So, you know, I've been reading online uh, about you and, and the way you lead Mercado. And you have this concept of PSP. What does that mean? Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. That's kind of near, near and dear to my heart. And um, I'm going to, I'm going to take it in two different directions on PSP. So PSP was, I've worked for a lot of really great companies in my career, fortune 500 companies. And I've learned a lot from each of them about the culture and the style and so forth. And I was really, really influenced by FedEx. I met just some amazing leaders there, uh, including Fred Smith, but, but his lieutenants 
and I really got to see firsthand what worked. And so I've, I've modified, but adopted most of my, my philosophy here based on all of my experience and particularly the latest in last influence, which was FedEx. So PSP stands for people, service and profits. And essentially it's very simple. Take great care of your people. They will give your customers great service and profits will follow. And there's a simple mantra to each of those, you know, treating people great means treating everybody with dignity and respect. And so then you start thinking about that and then you start celebrating diversity and you start wanting to care about all the things that matter. And uh, from a service standpoint, we, we wanna make every experience with our customers outstanding. And so we think about all the things that we can do to delight the customers. And then of course, profits follow. So that's, that's the overall. Within that, I've created a document for the team. Um, it's called What It Takes. And the style of it, I borrowed from Jeff Bezos. It's a six-page document because I learned that he doesn't do PowerPoints. He does six-page documents and gives the employees the chance to read them and then you discuss them. So I created six-point documents and it outlines our culture and our core values. So it talks about how and why we celebrate diversity. And it talks about what's important here and how we work as a team. And I also give them you know, really good insight into the business and what they've joined. And so the first day that every employee joins Mercado, one of their meetings is with me. And I, I literally get on, this, on a Zoom with them. I send them this document. I give them 10, 15 minutes, whatever it takes for them to read it. And then we spend the rest of the time discussing that document where I ask any questions, clarify any concerns. But, but everybody from day one starts off on exactly the same page with what it means to work for Mercado and what we really value and what we really care about. That's awesome. That's awesome. I, I found that to be really unique and uh, ended up kind of in, in a rabbit hole with uh, some of the other interviews you've done and found it kind of super powerful way to bring culture together and everybody on the same page. Um, so definitely kudos to you. I love that. Rob, to, to wrap this up here, uh, I'd love your, your perspective on this. Uh, but you know, if you weren't building Mercado, uh, and had to build a business in another part of supply chain or around another opportunity, where might that be? It's a great question. You know, I want to start by saying, this is where I want to be right now. I'm in the right place at the right time. So right now it's hard for me to imagine doing anything else because this is what, this is kind of what I was built to do or had the experience to do. And so I love this, but the, but I will share with you Santosh, my why, a big part of my why for building Mercado was beyond my personal passion for it and beyond the need, the business side of it. Um, I told you about all my great experiences and traveling 49 countries and all that stuff. I, I love the supply chain. I've met people from all over the world. I've experienced every culture, every religion. I just love this business. I'm so blessed. However, there, there, is, a, there is a downside, right? And I, and I visited a lot of factories and I met a lot of people and I've seen some really bad things as well. And so one of the things for this business that I'm pretty passionate about is what I call CSR or corporate, corporate social responsibility. And it's about how we treat the planet and how we treat humans. And so we're building some things in Mercado to address that. But if I wasn't doing this, I would focus on that full time. I mean, that's that's my real heart and my real passion, Santosh. I don't know how I'd make a business out of it, but I really think we need to uh, use all this great democratized technology we've got to do a much better job of uh, protecting people and protecting the planet. Indeed. So I guess I'd be building a CSR business. Indeed. And, and you know, I have uh, one one idea that I'm also happy to, to share with you here. But uh, 
I, I'm a part of, and I know several other founders, investors who are part of the Founders Pledge. And we basically align our financial success with some type of a altruistic interest. So, so in your case, it might be a specific aspect of uh, you know, corporate social responsibility, uh, sustainability efforts. Uh, but I, I, I love to hear that because I, I think a lot of people think that you know, uh, f- founders spend time, you know, just trying to build their business li- like crazy. But a lot of them, uh, similar to yourself, w- when you dig in, th- they truly want to leave a better world for everybody around them and coming after them. So props to you. Yeah. And well, props to you too, for the founders pledge. I just took a note on that. But uh, what I would say, Santosh, is it is um, w- when you're as fortunate as we are, and, and hopefully many of our listeners you've got an obligation to, to give back. And so uh, that, that's got to be core to your mission. And it's in my What It Takes document. So all of my employees understand that that's a, a core value for us. And, um, you know, so just great stuff to come out of that. And I, I'm looking forward to taking that. But if I wasn't doing this, I'd focus on that full time for sure. Awesome. Well, Rob, it, it was awesome to uh, chat about Mercado, about uh, the first mile of logistics here that you're championing uh, and I'm sure, uh, like myself, our listeners are going to uh, look forward to April to, to see how everyone's prediction uh, kind <laughs> of pans out. <laughs> Did not forget. <laughs> I, I changed the bet. Remember, I changed the bet to a six-pack of beer. Just in case I'm really wrong, I can still, I can still honor my bets. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. appreciate having you on, Rob. Cheers. Yeah, thanks for having me, Santosh. I really enjoyed it. Have a great one. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a five-star review and tell us what you liked. And be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Until next time.